morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 13 to the, uh, the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13, hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As far the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that by your Spirit you would help us to glean from this letter the very words of our Savior ministering to this little church. We pray that, Father, you would minister to us, that we might follow their example, and that we might come into a keener and greater and more deep understanding of what it means to be held in your hand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a former elder of our church moved out of state, as they are wont to do these days. This was many years ago, and um, he and his wife had a very difficult time Finding a church, he not only was an elder in the church, he was somebody I went to high school with. We, we had been friends for a long time. And uh, so they would go to churches and, and worship and fellowship with, with really dear brothers and sisters in Christ. But they couldn't seem to find a church that they were comfortable with doctrinally, uh, the, the liturgy, just dynamics in the churches that they visited just were like, yeah, we just don't really, don't really want to commit. Picking a church is, is serious business. I think sometimes we do that too casually. I, don't, I think it should be serious business, and I think it can be a very difficult thing to do. Well, one morning, this elder friend attended a, uh, a political meeting in his city, and there was a pastor there who offered a prayer and the prayer kind of picked his curiosity. There was something about the prayer that he, that he liked. So he and his wife found this guy's church, and they started attending this church. Now, I just have to say, I think interestingly enough, the denomination that that church was part of was also something that my elder friend 
wasn't entirely comfortable with. He, he kind of felt like, yeah, this denomination, the part of it's a little, little unorthodox. Not, not Christian, but you get the idea. It was like not something that he was like, yeah, we have found you know, where we want to be. But there was a, uh, a pastor there, the one that offered the prayer. He was in his 70s. And apparently this pastor was still a student into his 70s, which we all should be, right? We, I mean, semper reformanda. You're always reforming, whether you're an individual, whether you're a member, whether you're the church, or whether you're the pastor. You should always be reforming, always growing, always being sanctified. And apparently that was true of this pastor. He was in the Word studying, praying, and he had gone down a path where he had a, a deeper, richer understanding of the grace of God, the love of God, the law of God. It was, he was moving in a direction that my elder friend kind of could hear in his prayer. But this guy really understands what it means to be under God's grace. I mean, there was something beautiful about that, and my elder friend and his wife decided that they would join that church. Sadly, shortly thereafter, the, the pastor of that church succumbed to cancer, and he passed away. And, um, and apparently, he was kind of retired, and I don't know what he did during his normal career, but he, he and his wife both had, both had a pension, and so the church didn't have to pay him very much. And the church is small, and so they're having a hard time finding somebody else. They just can't afford to pay somebody to be the pastor of that, of that church. Add to that now, this, because of where the pastor kind of took this church, they're thinking about leaving that denomination. And so there's a lot going on in this little, little church. Now, last week, I wasn't here, as I am want to not be here. And I was preaching at that church. I was invited, and I spent a few days with my, my wife, and I spent a few days with this former elder and his wife and preached at that, at that church. It's a very small church, Most, mostly elderly saints in that church. Yet at the same time, as a result of the grace of God, I think as a result of the faithfulness of this pastor, even though it's a small church of elderly people, there was like this renewed joy and excitement that you could feel in this congregation. Like they were singing and talking and the whole thing was like, wow, the grace of God is at work here. I have to say, if, you are, if you're following, you know, Revelation, the, the, the angel of that church, the pastor of that church, I think really did his job. But the Lord took him home. Now, I, I open with this because having gone there and watched that take place and then coming back home into my study and starting to study, you know, our seven churches in the Revelation, it kind of struck me that that church is similar to the church at Philadelphia. It's, it's small. By worldly, measurable standards, people wouldn't walk into that church and say, well, something big is happening here. Boy, this place is really hopping. That is not what you, you would walk in and it's, you know, like I said, it's a small in number and elderly. And, it, you know, it's not like things are hopping at the Christian center down the road. It's like, it's, you, you, but if you have eyes to see, and my elder friends saw it, something great 
is taking place there. My friend, you know, they talked about all the churches they visited, mega churches, you know, where it's really loud and, you know, it appears that a lot is happening. But, you know, this guy's been in the faith for a long time and he would watch and he could tell, even though there's a lot of hoopla in this building, it is lacking true biblical content. It's just not where he and his wife wanted to be. I think it can be said of this little church in Arizona that they, quote, as we read just a minute ago in this passage, have little strength. They have little strength. Yet someone once said they serve the God of disproportionate results. Now, none of this is an argument for churches, I think, to remain small. I think we should always be seeking to grow and evangelize and reach out. But it is an argument, I think, against pure pragmatism. Determining your success in ministry or your pursuit in ministry apart from the unwavering commitment, as we will read in this passage, to the word of God and to the name of Christ. That is really apparent in that little church. That was happening here in the church of Philadelphia, and churches should be praying, all churches, that they have the same commitment. Let us go now to the text and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things, says he who is holy, he who is true, He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. A little bit about this city, Philadelphia. It was founded by um, Atlas II a couple hundred years before the birth of Christ. Um, It was named out of his love and loyalty for his brother, hence the name Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. If you, if you look at where it's at in this little horseshoe of churches that we see Revelation going to, that Roman postal route, it's kind of on the bottom right, and it was, uh, the, this church was called the Gateway to the East, and it was founded to promote Hellenism, you know, it's this, the Greek culture and so forth. And about, about 17 B.C., the city was decimated by volcanic activity. So that's what's happening in Philadelphia. Also, when it was decimated, the Roman Empire came in and pretty much paid to fix everything. Now, I mention that because when the government comes in and pays to fix everything, you find yourself beholding to the government. And I think that was true of many of these little churches when you have a monster like the Roman Empire kind of governing every word, thought, and deed in your life, or at least trying to. Now, similar to Smyrna, we see very little, if any, blame given to Philadelphia. I, I think I had mentioned when we went through Smyrna that Smyrna was the only church that, re, that didn't receive any negative criticism from Christ. That was, that's an error if I said that. Um, this church also. They, you know, Jesus has nothing negative to say about the church in Philadelphia. He only praises them. Both Smyrna, by the way, and Philadelphia were under great oppression, from the, religiously from the Jews, 
and politically from the Roman Empire, which, by the way, is this recurring theme that we're going to see throughout the Revelation. These are two, the two enemies of the church, bad religion and oppressive government. Well, we see this designation uh, at the beginning, as we see in every one of these letters. This, you know, the one writing this is holy and true, holy and true. It might seem obvious, but I'm going to state it anyway. The true head of the church must be characterized by supreme sanctity or supreme holiness. As we read in in Hebrews, holy, innocent, unstained. The the true head of the church is Christ himself. Again, maybe you're like, "Well, well, that's obvious. I think it needs to be stated. And true, holy and true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The church is to be governed by the head of the church who is holy and ever speaks the truth which we have contained in the word of God. That needs to be a commitment. I mean, for those of you who will ever search for a church, those of you who might be listening on the radio and you're looking for a church, these are are non-negotiables for the church. Is Christ the head of this church, and is that church governed by the Word of God? If that's not the case, then you're not in a good place for your soul. We read here a reference to the key of David. So we have this reference to the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now, if we had time, we would launch into a big study in Isaiah, where we see that phrase used, predominantly, but we don't have the time to do that. I'll just tell you kind of where this is going. If you read Isaiah, you see there was an evil man named Shebna, and there was a godly man named Eliakim. And Eliakim is thought to be, and I tend to agree with it, was a type of Christ. Shebna, kind of a type of the devil. And Shebna is removed and replaced by Eliakim. In the same way that at the time of the the beginning of the New Covenant, when the devil is, you know, runs roughshod and has sway over the whole world, Christ comes. It's kind of like there's a new sheriff in town. It's the deposition of the devil and the glory of Christ. That's what we see, and it is there that we begin to see this idea of doors and keys and opening and shutting. What does that mean, doors and keys and opening and shutting? Well, I mean, I guess it should be obvious to us, right? Keys and doors... Signify things like power, authority, entrance, protection. What keys and doors do, right? Keys open things, they close things, right? They keep you in, they keep you out. And so these are the types of things that keys do. What key are we talking about here? What is the most kind of prominent place in the New Testament where we see the use of the word keys? I would say it's in Matthew When Jesus is talking to Peter, that wonderful passage when he says, he's talking to Peter as the representative apostle, and he's talking about how, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and he's, on this rock I shall build my church, and then he tells Peter that to you is given the keys of the kingdom. I have to tell you, as an elder in a church, that's a scary statement, because you've got to ask yourself, Well, who has the keys? Because in the verse we just read, 
It's Jesus who has the keys, right? He's the one who has the keys to the kingdom. He's the one who opens the door and shuts the door. But when Jesus is talking to Peter, he's talking about the church. He's saying, well, the church has the keys. Well, who is it? Which is it? Well, I do believe it's this. I think the answer is this. To the extent that the church placards and heralds Christ, it has it. If the church is not placarding Christ, if the church is not elevating Christ, if Christ is not the central focus of the church, then the church doesn't have keys to anything. But if the church is, in fact, presenting Christ and him crucified, that is the means by which the keys function. We need to take that to heart. The church is kind of a, you look in your Bibles, the church is all over the place, and it's kind of a bigger deal than we think, and as, an, as potential elders, it should fill our hearts, you know, the elders we have and the ones we're going to have, it should fill our hearts with a little bit of fear to know that you have such a responsibility. At the same time, if Jesus has prepared a place for you, you know, and that my father's mansion, there's many rooms, and I'm, I go to prepare a place for you, if he opens that door, nobody can keep you out, and if you're in, nobody can throw you out. Verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. You know, this is a little church. Like I said, it reminded me of the church, you know, that I saw in Arizona. But this little church is not on the back burner. It's not like, you know what, you guys just go ahead and continue to exist while I take care of my big business with my big church. Jesus knows. He knows what's going on. He knows their trials. He knows their difficulties. He knows who their oppressors are. And though they're small in numbers and small in strength, they have kept his word. What a wonderful thing to hear from the Savior. I know that you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. I was asked recently, just this last week, actually, to give a testimony about a local church, not in our denomination, maybe not even technically a reformed church, you know, but they are a reforming church. And, you know, I was, I, when I was going to this interview, I was thinking, you know, I, I don't want to be critical because, you know, I mean, pastors always have something critical to say about anything, right? I go, but it's like if they're for their anniversary and I'm supposed to say something affirming. But it wasn't hard for me to find something affirming because the one thing I noticed about this other church was if you go to that church, somebody up front is going to open their Bible and they're going to wrestle their way through it. And I think that's why that church has remained a church because they're opening their Bible and I don't agree with their, all their conclusions. I don't agree with all the conclusions of our own elders sometimes, right? But you open the Word of God and you wrestle your way through it, right? My Word, we have God's Word and if we're not opening it and wrestling with it, as a church, we're like people on a journey with no map. Right? It's that old saying, right? I don't, know, I don't know where we're going, but we're making good time. There's just a lot of hoopla, but there's not a lot of content and direction. So you open that word of God. And if you do open that word of God, it won't take long until you are confronted with the name of Christ. And you know, as we talked before, in the Semitic language, 
The word name means the totality of the person. It's not just the name Jesus or the name Christ, but the totality of who Christ is. You open the word, and now you have Christ. Well, now churches have to make a decision. Will they, in fact, placard the name of Christ? Okay, you've opened the word. You have found the name of Christ. Are you willing to broadcast the name of Christ? Because those are two entirely different things. Sometimes I find it so disturbing when, I, when I, I'll listen to a sermon and they read a passage. And I'm like, there it is. You know, there's the, there's the redeeming word of God. And then they start talking and they're not saying anything about the passage they just read. We are, we are to broadcast the name of Christ. I mean, Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 10, 27 and 28. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I mean, you and I both feel a little bit kind of hesitant to proclaim the name of Christ in certain environments. And yet none of us, at least in this culture, are confronted with the fear of death, right? I mean, in Hebrews, so none of you have gone to the point of shedding blood. Jesus is going, look, I'm sending you guys out. And there are people who will want to kill you. Don't be afraid of them. We need to muster up a little courage. We need to be able to say what Jesus kind of whispered to us. We need to look back and get on top of the roof with a bullhorn and say it. I'm not literally, because you might, people think you might be crazy, but I don't, I don't know. Nonetheless, whatever the best method is, it's got to be done. And that's what they were doing. This little church in Philadelphia, they were faithful in this capacity. They knew the word of God, and they did not deny the name of Christ, even in an environment that would have been dangerous for them to proclaim it. Jesus then mentions an open door. Now, that can mean, well, it can mean one of two things, or I guess it could mean both. The door was open for them to enter the kingdom of God. I'm opening a door. And I, I don't go entirely with this, but we know Jesus refers to himself as, as the door, right? So it, it could be that. I think that's pushing it a little bit too far, but I think the door to the kingdom is one thing that is kind of a, a reasonable understanding of that text. But what you see in the New Testament, probably more than that, when you get to that open door, is the open door for a ministerial opportunity. We see the Apostle Paul saying that quite a bit. The Lord opened a door for us. And you're kind of going, okay, open the door to do what? To minister, to proclaim. This idea that God is going, I'm giving you an opportunity. You know, makes me wonder how many times God has opened doors for us, and we just walk on by. You know, Dan got up here this morning, and he, he mentioned our, our activities that we're going to, you know, that the church has. And churches do that. We do that. We, and some of them could be intense, working at homeless shelters or some very pious things like prayer meetings, some of them game night, you know, where it's just a, an opportunity for you to get together and sit across the table from somebody and get to know them and so forth. These are, these are things that churches provide in order for people in their church to somehow, at some level, minister or to be ministered to or to interact. 
that we have a whole list of them. I think last time I looked, we had like 50-something things you could do. But let's be careful not to constrain God to our list. Right? If God opens a door, don't, don't break your bulletin out and go, not really on the list here. Because he may be opening doors, and I suspect that he does, and we should walk through that door. And again, whether that's saying something or inviting someone or giving them a glass of water or whatever it might be, God opens doors, and we should avail ourselves of that when he does. Verses 9 and 10. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. These are two loaded verses. I, I don't know, you know, I look out and I, we had dinner last night with some people in our church and one of the dads, you know, I was going, you know, sometimes it's, it's tricky to give a sermon because you've got a big wide variety, you know. He's got a son who's, I don't know exactly how old his son is, he's in single digits though, you know, eight or nine. He's like, yeah, you've got to preach to me, you've got to preach to my son. I'm like, Yeah. You know, that's kind of a tough class to get a lesson plan for. So I don't know to what extent you're like doing your revelation homework, but these two verses are loaded verses. What in the world are we talking about here? Well, we have the second reference to the synagogue of Satan. What is that? Who are they? The synagogue of Satan is a religious community of Jews, he's, he, you know, it's like they say they are Jews, but they're not. They, are, they got Jewish blood in their veins, but they have rejected the Messiah. So Jesus is saying they say they're Jews, but they're not really Jews. The true Jew, when Christ came, would say, yes, this is my Savior. This is the Messiah. So Jesus is making that distinction. He makes it twice. He makes it here, and he made it in chapter 2. They say they're Jews, but they're not. And it's not just that. It's like it's not as if they're going, look, at. we don't really want too much Jesus in our church. It is Jesus is supplanted by Satan. They're not a synagogue of the secular. Right? They're a synagogue of Satan. I mean, the devil is looking for religious opportunities. And when churches decide, I'm going to reject Christ, it's not as if Satan pays no attention He's like, oh, uh, hey, a vacancy. There's a room to let. And that is what's happening here. Let me tell you, and what I'm saying right now is we're going to run very counter to the most popular views you're hearing today. But I think it is a very unhealthy thing for the church and for the people that we're going to seek to minister to to think that anybody has a special place in God's covenant by virtue of the blood flowing through their veins. That, and again, you, know, you can ask me about that in Q&A, but that is the predominant view. Does the Bible teach, what does the Bible teach about the ethnic Jew? You know what the Bible teaches about the ethnic Jew, the, the Jew who you know, can trace himself back to Abraham? The Bible teaches that there will come a time 
when they will come to faith. And it'll be, Paul says, and it'll be like life from the dead. I mean, there's this glorious plan that it's not as if God said, look, you guys rejected Christ, so I'm going to annihilate you like I did Sodom and Gomorrah. No. Matter of fact, what he's saying is in the future and throughout the course of history, these people will come. And can you imagine how glorious that would be? Because the people that you and I, some of us, maybe, I don't know if you do, who enjoy on the radio the most, so many of them are Jewish. Can you imagine Ben Shapiro coming to faith in Christ? Because we'd hire him here. (laughs) Or Dennis Prager. If they brought their knowledge of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and God opened their eyes to see what Jesus said, that it's all about him, can you imagine? And I think that's what the Apostle Paul was so excited about. So we are not to go look at as a person because of your ethnicity, because of your heritage, you have a special place. No, we are to evangelize. We are to love them. We are to pray for them. We are to bring them into the kingdom, recognizing that that their place in the kingdom is something that will be glorious to the advancement of the Great Commission. But in this context, they are enemies of the church. Jesus, Jesus, speaking to them, said, your father, he's talking to Jewish leaders in John chapter 8, he says, your father is the father of lies, the devil. So they need Christ, simply put. Well, now we have this other portion of this passage that I have to say, I read it and I read it, this idea that I will have them come and worship at your feet. What does that mean? Because I'm not comfortable with that idea. I don't, want, I don't want anybody worshiping at my feet. And I should be uncomfortable with it. You know who else was very uncomfortable with it? Peter was uncomfortable with it. Right? When it's like Peter shows up and, and, and you know, I think it was Cornelius falls down to worship at his feet. And Peter goes, whoa, whoa. You get up. I'm just, don't be bowing down before me. So I think, I think any understanding that, that we might have of this passage that the Lord is going, look, they're going to come down and worship you would be a misunderstanding of this passage. This is one of, those, one of those passages that if you don't understand the Old Testament, as it, it's, it's hard. The Old Testament is big and thick and it's got a lot in it. And if we don't understand the Old Testament, we won't get the irony of this passage. So let me just briefly explain where this is probably coming from. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there's a promise to Israel that the enemies of Israel will find themselves in a subservient role to Israel. God is kind of, these nations are going to attack you, but instead of attacking you and instead of succeeding, there will come a time when their houses will be your houses. There'll come a time when their cattle will belong to you. There'll come a time when they will recognize that you are the people who I love. Okay, so you have that promise given to Israel. Now, now, you, now you've got it kind of turned on its head here. You see, see what's, what this passage is telling us is that in a very ironic way, the very promises that we read in the Old Testament that were given to Israel are given to the true Israel of God, those who've called upon the name of Christ. And again, I don't think this is a matter of us kind of going... Well, are they going to worship me? No, I think it's more like what we see in Philippians chapter 2, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
That's what's going to, I think, happen. And I think that's what he's talking about here. And then he goes, look at it. And, and I don't want to put an emphasis in the Bible where it, you know, because the Bible doesn't tell us, what do you emphasize, right? When you get to this word, say it a little louder or say, you know, but I'll do that just for now. They will know that I have loved you. They will not think that my redeeming love is extended to them by virtue of their relationship to Abraham. Remember what John the Baptist said? Don't, don't even begin to tell me that you have Abraham as your father. God can take these stones and turn them into sons of Abraham. What we need is faith. Are you a child of faith, not a child of blood? All right, well, moving on. Uh, Due to the person, now now it's going to get even thicker. Due to the persevering faith, he's like, because you have persevered, this church at Philadelphia will be kept from, quote, the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. All right? What is that? What do you think he's talking about there? Because you have persevered, I am going to keep you from the hour of trial which is about to come upon the whole world. Well, I, um, I don't want to sound snarky or snippy or any other word to describe somebody who needs to really approach this kind of lovingly. But I have to tell you, and I've got about, I have about, I have the bibliography for those of you who want it. I've got about 60 books that I'm referencing as I go through. And this, this verse is one of those verses where the most erudite scholars that I respect in so many different ways just go into the proverbial ditch. Where I'm going, what? What? You all know the story about how I was preaching through Revelation, right, 30 years ago, and I got finally to a place where I'm like, I have no idea what I'm talking about here, because I relied on a commentary, and then I'm like, I don't, I don't see this. Sermon's over. Nobody really complained that we ended early that day. This is one of those verses where you're going, I could say what these commentators say, but I don't see it, and I'll ask you if you see it. The most Common view today, not historically, mind you, not if you go back a couple of hundred years, but the most popular view today, the view that you're going to see, you know, in books like the late great planet Earth or the Left Behind series and all the movies and all that, is that when he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial, which is about to come upon the whole world, is the rapture. Now... This is, I think, one of those examples where you're forcing your system to change what the Bible actually means. Because if, if Jesus is saying, I'm going to rapture you, he didn't keep that promise. He's writing to the church of Philadelphia. Now, according to this view, which is not a view that I hold, the rapture is not going to happen for a couple of thousand years. But he's telling them, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial, which is about to come upon the whole world. But they weren't raptured. To me, that is a big, giant theological tamale just hanging out there. 
I am just going, I, I just, that just doesn't work for me. I don't think it should work for you. I think you should go, what? Well, add this to that. The very next verse, you know what Jesus says? Behold, I am coming quickly. And I add that to it. Right, so whatever was about to happen was going to happen quickly. Now, you, if you're at that church, if you're at the Church of Philadelphia and you're reading this, what do you think is going to happen? Something that you're going to be kind of protected through, that's going to happen when? Quickly. <laughs> right, exactly right. Well, there are a couple of things, and I, I got to stop here. You can, again, you can ask me more about this in Q&A if you'd like. But there's a couple of things we need to learn here, both ministerially and, you know, in terms of how God is ministering to his church. And, and it's a big word, but I'm going to say it and then I'll explain it. And exegetically. And that is how we study our Bible, how we read our Bible. Okay? First, tough times for this church at Philadelphia are coming. And God is going to see his church through it. And I think that is a promise that you and I can believe would apply to us as well. That he knows this church. He knows their difficulties. There is something very difficult that's about to happen. And he's going to keep them through it. I think it's a very precious ministerial promise. If I were part of that church, I would be comforted. You should be comforted. Because it's a message that he gives to his churches. Exegetically, the term, the whole world, does not, in Scripture, always, sometimes it does, but it does not always mean every last single person on the planet. I mean, I can give you a whole bunch of examples. The one obvious example is when Caesar calls for there to be a census, right, in Luke chapter 2. There's going to be a census. And he says, a census taken of the whole world. Now, last time I checked, that census did not include the Yucatan Peninsula. It didn't, it wasn't, there was, South America wasn't in it. Alaska wasn't in it. The, the whole world, matter of fact, there's another verse where it says, the, you know, the apostles are there and it says, look, the whole world follows them. There are numerous verses in the Bible where the, the phrase, the whole world, and in Greek, those words are used that could not possibly mean every last single place or every last single person on the planet. And so we have to recognize biblical language when we see it. Oftentimes, when we read our Bibles, the Roman Empire is viewed as the whole world. Paul says to the church at Rome, your faith has been proclaimed throughout the whole world. We read in Acts at Pentecost that there were at Acts people from every nation under heaven. People from every nation under heaven, as the way you and I might understand it, weren't at Pentecost. It's a matter of kind of understanding the way the Bible uses language. And if you're not willing to acknowledge that, then you have a verse like this, and you can't make any sense of it at all. Well, let's move on. Finally, verses 11 through 13. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. 
He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think the most natural, literal understanding for the members of the church at Philadelphia when they hear that Christ is coming quickly would be for them to expect that something was about to happen. And there are a lot of other verses in Revelation that indicate the same thing. Things which must shortly come to pass. The time is near. It's said over and over and over, and yet somehow we live in a generation that has just quantum leaped this into thousands and thousands of years in the future, and I think it's exegetical madness. I think we're just kind of going, we're going to make the Bible cater to the grid of theology that we're committed to, rather than let the Bible speak for itself. I think it's most reasonable to understand when he says, Behold, I'm coming. When Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming, it's not his first coming, right? Because he already came. But it's not his second coming either, because he's about to come. But as we had studied earlier, when the Bible talks about Jesus coming, it can mean any number of things. He can come in history to judge. He can come in history to bless. This kind of language is used throughout. And what I would argue here is what he's talking about is the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Jesus had preached on that in the Olivet Discourse when they were admiring the temples. And he said, don't admire them too much because in this generation, verse 34 of chapter 24, Not one stone will be left upon the other. That temple was like an emblem of the old covenant. And Jesus is saying it's coming to an end. It was cataclysmic. It was ferocious. It was a siege. They called it the siege of Jerusalem. The world knows this as B.C., becoming A.D., or today, right, B.C.E., becoming C.E., don't get me started. (laughs) That's, That's the way the world sees this event. The church sees it as Old Covenant, New Covenant. There's this New Covenant. It's international. It's the full proclamation of the redemption that is found in Christ. It presents to you and to me things that the angels longed to look at. And we have it. So the old covenant was coming to an end. And Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Now, he's got a little lid. He's like, hey, be careful that nobody takes your crown. You know, normally when you see the crown in reference to you or me, it's promised to those who have finished the race. You're going to finish the race and receive your crown. And yet in another sense, you and I already have, if you're in Christ, you already have a crown. He's like, don't let them take your crown away. We have it by virtue of his promise. In the same way in Romans 8, he says we're glorified. I'm like, I'm not feeling very glorified today. 
but it's the promise of God. And so I can understand that in kind of what they, they talk about a, an already not yet sense. I don't know if we think about it this way very often. I know I don't. In a world, you know, striving for identity, right? Everybody needs to kind of find themselves and stuff. We're working so hard. Remember when I was teaching high school, we had a, an award ceremony at a high school that had about 2,500 students, and we gave an award trying to bolster their self-image, to give them an identity, to make them feel like, yeah, I am somebody. We gave an award virtually to every student in the entire school. And the only thing we created was a litter problem. Because every kid there knew this means nothing. What we've done is we have taken away this idea of telling young people, you know what? You are fearfully and wonderfully made by a creator. And you are his supreme work. The stars and the sun and the moon, they're, they're almost like in the background, but you are made in the image of God. And in our public school system, we've taken that out and we try to replace it with an 8 by 11 sheet of paper saying, you're somebody. And they're like, well, who, who am I? Well, you know, well, you're an accident, but you're a cosmic accident. But, you know, at least you're fast or you're a good writer or you were really good in that play last week or something. And, and kids are kind of going, wow, you've just kind of pull the carpet out from under my feet. I remember doing an interview with a young man uh, who wasn't a believer, and I was sharing that with him. He's like, so, you know, how, do I, how, how am I to understand my own humanity? And I said, well, first of all, you need, to, you need to understand that you are fearfully and wonderfully made by God himself. And he looked at me like, you got to be kidding me. I was like, who's hiding this information from me? What a wonderful thing to hear. Well, so we have this identity thing. I mean, and, and we've got, those who are in Christ, you've got bags of identity. But one of the things I think we seldom think of in terms of who am I in Christ is kind of an enlisted soldier wearing the crown. I don't know if we think about that too often, and I think that's what this passage seems to be indicating. It's like, you got a crown, don't let that crown slip off your head. You know, we read in Scripture, thinking about being enlisted in the service, thinking about being a warrior for Christ. We read in the Scriptures oftentimes of these small groups of warriors, right? right? David's mighty men. I was studying that this week, and it's like they're trying to describe David's mighty man. And they said they, they fight like a bear whose cubs have been robbed. Right? Mama bear. You don't want to be robbing the cubs of the bear. That's the way. Or we read about Gideon, right? Who started out with like whatever it was, 10,000, and God's like, you got too many. And it went through a series of things, went down to 300, and they destroyed the entire Midianite army. Talk about the God of disproportionate results. And I don't want to sound, you know, melodramatic, and I think maybe actually this is just the opposite of melodramatic, but my mind could not help go to Tolkien's wonderful, you know, uh, analogy of the Christian faith in the Lord of the Rings, right? The Fellowship of the Ring. 
And I think of, you know, you have, I think it was uh, nine warriors who are responsible for rescuing the entire Middle Earth, right? And four of them are hobbits. You know, this idea that you're like, God is going, I'm going to do something great, and I got a small group of people. You got a crown, keep the crown. Well, we're in a battle, friends, and there are people who would derail you. There is an enemy that would derail you. To, 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 to be wooed, in a, you know, and as a, as a father, and I, I'm, you know, we're always on the lookout for how this might affect our own children. I'm always on the lookout for how it will affect the young people and even old people in our own church when we are kind of captivated by worldly systems, empty philosophies, charming personalities, talented singers. I mean, is there a more beautiful song than Imagine by John Lennon? I have to tell you, that song comes on and it emotionally affects me and it is straight out of hell, right? I mean, not to be mean, right? Imagine there's no God. Imagine there's no heaven. You're like going, wow, what are the consequences of that? So, but you're, you're looking at it, you know, if you're in a room full of people, it's kind of like, hey, you know, that and stairway to heaven. It's just kind of like, wow, it's getting me where I want to go. It's not getting you anywhere. It's getting you where the enemy wants you to go. This idea that we can so easily be captivated by this very ambiguous greater good that is hanging out there. Hey, you got to do that for the greater good. Well, what is the greater good? Do you? Yeah. Well... I just want to challenge all of us that we do not, for a moment, give up that crown. We do not, for a moment, pinch just a little incense, right, to that would-be sovereign. We don't, for a moment, utter words of allegiance to that person who would supplant Christ, even if it's just a little word here, a little word there, a little gesture here, a little gesture there. We just do not give an inch. He says, hold fast what you got. Because if you do not do that, if you're not willing to fight, you're going to look up and your crown's going to be gone. That's the warning he's given. Let no one steal your crown. And they were in an environment where that, we'll get into this, right? Where it's like, but wait a minute, we can't buy or sell. We can't function in society unless we bow the knee to Caesar. Oh, man. You know what? We'll get into the mark of the beast. I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but I'll tell you this. That if you want to know where I think the mark of the beast first shows up in terms of an action in the New Testament is when the people of the covenant people of God say, we have no king but Caesar. They have taken the mark of the beast when they, when they have said that. No, I'm, don't worry about tattoos and computer chips and the return to park stamp at Disneyland and all these other things people <laughs> think it is. That is what it is. It is going, no, I will follow Caesar. Caesar will take care of me. Well, the glorious promise to the one who overcomes, says Jesus, is that they will be a pillar in the temple of my God. 
So what, what he does here throughout the Revelation is direct our hearts to the reality behind our observations. We're looking at, that's why Revelation chapter 1 starts with the glorified Christ. You, we've got all, it's almost like we need to read chapter 1 every week before we get, read any of the other chapters so we know who, in fact, is on the throne and the power and the glory and the wisdom of Christ. And our minds are ever directed to that which is really happening. You know, in that world of the Spirit of God, there's a temple. As I mentioned, that temple would be destroyed. The temple became a distraction you know, you, you're, I, there's this beautiful church up here in PV called uh, the Glass, Glass Chapel. And uh, it is. I mean, it was, the architecture, architect was Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. You know, and I mean, you'll go in there and you're like, wow. And I remember witnessing to this guy, old buddy of mine, track and field buddy of mine. And he was resistant, resistant, resistant. And he finally went to like a wedding at the Glass Chapel. And he's like, hey, Vid, you call me Vid, you know. He goes, I think I found God. I'm like, you know, I was ready to like praise God. I'm like, tell me what happened. And well, he's at the glass chapel, man. I'm like, wow, I better go see him. You know what I mean? What? But it's like this distraction of this like holy environment. That's why, you know, sometimes in Reformed churches, they keep their churches as plain as possible. We're kind of fancy. You know, but it's like no distractions. You know, I think they might overdo it sometimes. But that's kind of what's, that's where our mind needs to be directed. It needs to be directed to that which our eyes can't actually see but by faith. Because it is such a distraction. I remember going to a baseball game with some people in our church years ago. And I met this other couple, and they were believers. They didn't attend our church, you know. And we're sitting down, and they're like, oh, it's Pastor Paul. And I could tell they were like, oh, I've got questions, you know, a pastor. And I'm like... All right, I guess I'm not going to be watching the game here. And you know me, I enjoy those conversations. The very first thing, number one question. So, you think the temple is about to be rebuilt? Now, I don't know if you know what they're talking about. You know, the, the, the popular brand of eschatology, you have the temple being rebuilt, and then that kind of is, you know, the sacrifice. You know, Jesus is going to enter that rebuilt temple where there will be sacrifices and this and that. So, there's this temple in order for that system to work that needs to be rebuilt and I go I think it's already been rebuilt they're like no way intelligence reports like what what tell us I go well I think the temple is the body of Christ and I can't tell you how disappointed they were (laughs) I'm like okay you see where there's something wrong with that where you're more excited about the temple than you are about the temple. The rebuilt temple, you know, it's only mentioned one time in the New Testament. All the talk about rebuilding the temple, I'm going to read it to you here. The only time in the New Testament where we read of the rebuilding of the temple is in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Jesus answered them saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And we see the commentary by John, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. That needs to be the focus, the temple of his body. Now, of course, initially, what's he talking about? The resurrection, right? 
three days, it's going to be a resurrection. But we have to recognize this as well, that when Jesus starts talking about his body, he doesn't stop at the resurrection. You know who else is the body of Christ? You're the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. The imagery, this idea that you are going to be a pillar in the temple of God is kind of something we see throughout Scripture. I mean, it's just it's fascinating and it's glorious and it's beautiful. First of all, we read in, in Corinthians, right, that our bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit. So each individually we are a temple. But then Peter tells us we're living stones, right? So we're, we're a temple. And it's like each temple is a stone being built into another temple. So you got this, if you get it in your head, you've got this building made of bricks. But each brick is its own building. And that's the image given here that... that that we, are, we don't lose our individuality. It's very personal. God is using us in that respect. He loves us in that respect. But we can't deny the fact that we're at the same time to be called a pillar in the temple of God. Are you a pillar in the temple of God? And what is that? Because let me tell you this. If you think, yeah, the, the, the house of God, the temple of God needs me to hold it up, I think that's a mistake. It's been suggested, and I think there's merit to it, that the kind of pillar that he's talking about are the kind of pillars that you see of the stately Roman emperors in the first century, where in those various temples you would see a pillar and you would see a bust or you'd see one of the emperors. So you got this idea, whatever it is, that you are part of this glorious structure. You're part of it. And nobody's taking it down. It can't be defaced. Nobody's, you know, they're how they're taking statues down everywhere and stuff. Nobody's going to be able to march in there and take your statue down. Because the Lord has put his name upon you. He's put the name of his city upon you. I mean, it's almost like he's going, how many ways do I need to say this? If you are faithful, the glory of heaven, the new Jerusalem, and everything that is eternal and good and pure and right and redemptive is something you're part of. And so this church in Philadelphia, this little church, so small, so weak, who probably looked at themselves and said, we got nothing to offer. Jesus is looking at them going, look at all around you, things are going to go south. But I'm going to see you through it and you need to remain faithful. I mean, I, you know, you think about all the stuff going on in our culture right now. It's, you know, to be honest with you, small potatoes compared to what they were dealing with. I just feel like, you know, and I'm going to... This is not pointing, I feel this way about myself I, and us, that we've become so fragile. We're such weaklings. You know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and we're like, well, I just can't handle it. You know, I mean, Jesus saying, no, man, you need to overcome. You need to persevere. I need warriors. I need mighty men, mighty women. Where's my 300? Keep the crown on and go to work. But ultimately, you know this, that the battle is the Lord's, and that victory is already won. We're not, we're not going, look at it, was this gonna, how's this going to all pan out? You know, Goliath is dead, right? He's been beheaded. That enemy of the, God, the covenant people of God was destroyed by the anointed one of God by himself, David, who is a type of Christ. And it now, now that we're, we're on the, the, the side of, of, the, of the mountain looking into the valley, God's going, okay, now go take that which was won by David. Well, what does that mean? What are, what's the loot? What's the spoils? It's not us being selfish. It is bringing the love of God, the grace of God, the redemption of Christ, the gospel. It is fulfilling the great commission. Make disciples, baptizing them. 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There is a usurper and you need to go to work and bring the light of Christ to every square inch of this creation. You you are part of that temple. You're a pillar in it. Well, I just want to finish with a reading and I won't say much about it. Because I think, you know, we've got recognition that the the battle is won, yet at the same time, we're in the battle. And I think both in a very human, yet at the same time, very spiritual way, Paul expresses that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 through 14, and we'll just end this morning with the reading of that. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. And I just want the emphasis to be here, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray as we examine and study and meditate upon and ponder this little faithful church in Asia Minor so long ago, that we would seek to imitate those things in that church which received the commendation of Jesus himself. May we ever be a church that holds fast to your word. May we ever be a church that never denies your name May this church be filled with those who find themselves to be pillars in the true temple of the living God. And may all this be done to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.